Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for tuning in to the conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Wednesday, December 13th, the final day of our end-of-the-year membership drive. It's the shopping season, and scammers are on the prowl. Are you making the right choices to protect your money and your data? And about those gift cards? Know your rights. We hear from the state consumer protector. For many, it's a festive season, but the holidays can be a tough time for some, particularly if you aren't in a good space mentally. We discuss why men and boys can have a tougher time with the latest statistics show. Plus, we've got the call of the Java Sparrow on today's Manu Minute. The conversation starts right after the latest local and national headlines. Yes, is is the season to fall prey to scammers. Uh, State consumer protector Mona Moriarty stopped by our studios the other day to remind shoppers about being extra careful about your money and data, particularly when you're shopping online. I'll start with one I think is probably going to be obvious to a lot of the listeners, and that is that when you purchase by credit card, you have some protections built into that. That's in very intentional. It's a result of Congress acting to make sure that you're going to be safe and protected in instances where, for example, you ordered a product and it never came, or you were double billed for a product, or even instances where the quality just simply doesn't meet your expectations. Yeah, so so that is basically the best way to con- conduct a transaction because you have the, that insurance built in. There are those built-in safeguards like you know, if if one of these billing errors comes up, you as the consumer should initiate a dispute with a credit card issuer. Once that initiation takes place, then the issuer has an obligation to investigate. And during that investigation, you're not on the hook for the money. And these scammers can get your information very quickly. I mean, there was just an uh, instance recently where uh, Time Supermarket had people uh, put in scanners that basically were reading people's credit cards at the checkout station uh, at the grocery store, and that was kind of alarming. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Data privacy, a term you hear kicked about a lot. Sometimes I think it's just we're just skimming the surface of this vast, dark universe where our data is just floating around out there for the highest bidder. Um, So one of the things that we need to be careful of during this season online shopping, don't click the links. If you can, type it. Type a URL into the address bar to get to where you're trying to get to. Um, if you receive an email with links in it, be a little skeptical. Do your own search. Run a, run a search through a search engine and find the site. Or of course, you could always do the old-fashioned thing and call the business that you're trying to reach. If you see an ad that looks a little bit enticing on your social media feed or just as you're browsing it's popping up in your browser window be a little skeptical don't immediately click that ad there are instances where people have clicked ads and where we've learned that they have then become the victim of malware they've been taken to a site that has downloaded a malware onto their computer system and at that point, their movements can perhaps be tracked, depending on the nature of the, the software. So you just got to be really mindful because this is the season when everybody's shopping online. That's right. There are 
payment methods that we see out there that are much more problematic than, than credit cards. And as I said, credit card it, it is sort of the gold standard right now. There are things like peer-to-peer apps out there. There are gift cards. And there are products that are increasingly used, uh, such as Buy Now, Pay Later, which can stand in for consumers who may have a hard time making a full payment in one transaction. They can divide that transaction into four. And Catherine, we can probably touch on each of these, right? Yeah. Let's talk about gift cards. Gift cards are so popular at this time of year. It's an easy thing to reach for or pick up in the checkout line when you're looking for a present for a holiday party. Gift cards, um, not inherently problematic. So something we can talk about are what we mean by gift card and gift certificate under Hawaii law, what the basic protections are in place for consumers. And then we can talk about sort of the dark side of gift cards, how they've been used to facilitate fraud and facilitate criminal conduct. Yeah, money laundering. Yeah. So it is closely tied to some criminal conduct. But why don't we start, if it's okay with you, mm-hmm. Catherine, with the you know the, the basics with gift cards under Hawaii law. You've got gift cards and you've got paper gift certificates. And merchants have to honor those if they're issuing them. No service fees can be charged for inactivity or dormancy. And any activation fees, although these are not typical, cannot exceed $5. One key point for consumers is that the issuance and the expiration dates shall be clearly identified. And that's important because the date of expiration cannot be less than five years after the date of issuance for a gift card, one of those plastic things. Yeah, you can just get it at the checkout stand at the grocery store. Exactly right. And some merchants still issue paper gift certificates. And for those paper gift certificates, the date of expiration cannot be less than two years after the date of issuance. And recently, the Hawaii legislature enacted an amendment to the gift card statute, which requires issuers to redeem the gift card for cash if the balance is less than $5. Yeah, I mean, because generally then, yeah, the the merchant doesn't want to have that outstanding, right? Just pay it off, pay it out. Well, query whether it's the merchant or the consumer that we're really benefiting. The merchant, perhaps either way, you know, they, the gift card's been issued, maybe that's the end of the story for the merchant. For the consumer, if you're stuck with a bunch of gift cards that are $2 here, $3 here, a dollar here, you really haven't gotten the full value of the gift. Right? Or you haven't, as a consumer, you haven't gotten the full value of your, your product that you bought. What about if the merchant goes out of business? That just popped in my head because that has happened. Exactly. And we've gotten complaints about that in the past. That's a thing that consumers have to be aware of. Gift cards are in some ways fungible, but in some ways they're not as good as cash. They're not as good as the actual gift itself because you do take on that risk that the business won't be there when you go and try and use the gift card or the person you're giving the card to goes to try and use the gift card. We are talking with State Consumer Protector Mana Moriarty about holiday scams and best practices. We'll continue with our conversation with him right after this break. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. This month, screening films that explore uses of perspective, including Rashomon, A Bigger Splash, and The Draftsman's Contract. Film schedule at honolulumuseum.org. 
Well, let us get back to our conversation with state consumer protector Mona Moriarty. Earlier he was talking about gift cards and the risks involved if the vendor goes out of business. We pick up our conversation with the discussion of how gift cards can be used to scam consumers and how you can protect yourself. Anyone that demands payment by a gift card is always a scammer. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Federal Trade Commission. If you bought a gift card and gave some of the numbers off the back of the card, that's probably a scam. Use your gift card store receipt for these next steps if you're the victim or you think you've been the victim of a scam. You want to report the scam to the gift card company right away. No matter how long ago it happened, you want to report it. And you want to ask for your money back. There are companies out there that are helping to stop gift card scams and might give your money back if you were the victim of one. It's worth asking. If you have questions about how to contact the gift card companies, you can get in touch with our office and we can provide you the right information to um, make that inquiry. Are there new scams that you're seeing that maybe you didn't see before? Well, with gift cards, I think one thing to be aware of is the idea that there's a great deal out there to be had if we go shopping for a discounted gift card. So there are these online auction sites that are selling gift cards at discounted rates. They're selling those for a reason And in many cases, these online auctions of gift cards are linked to organized crime. Okay, what if you buy them at a big box store? Sometimes you can buy them there. Sure, if you buy them at a big box store, one tip is just to make sure the packaging is in place. Make sure the security code for the gift card hasn't been scratched off. And and just take a look and make sure that it uh, looks up to snuff. Take a picture of the gift card and store it on your phone. If you don't have the gift card in your possession anymore, then you have evidence that you had it. And if you're making a report that you were a victim of a scam involving a gift card, then you'll be able to provide the authorities or the company with the appropriate information about the gift card. Okay. Um, What else? What are some other um, things we need to be mindful of? Well, there's a, a product that is growing in popularity out there these days. And... It's usually referred to as buy now, pay later. Buy now, pay later is being offered on uh, e-commerce websites for typically purchases that we might think of as small to medium value value purchases. They'll allow the consumer to divide the purchase price into four equal installments, typically payable in a short term, six months or less. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing you used to be able to get at like Sears, right? Or or Kmart, right, which don't exist anymore. Uh, but yeah, layaway. Yeah. Uh, this is the reincarnation of layaway. And some things to know about this are, this is not a credit card. Depending on the product that you're using or the, the buy now company that you're choosing to go with, the products can be zero interest or there can be an interest rate attached to it, in which case you're borrowing money. There are fees typically attached to these products, although not always. And the fees really are how the companies are going to make their money. So before you dive in with a buy now, pay later product, ask yourself whether there are interest charges or fees. Ask yourself, too, whether the plan provider is going to report your payments to a credit bureau. Because in some instances, the payment provider may be only reporting delinquencies to the credit bureau. That means that it can hurt your credit score, and if they're not reporting payments to the credit bureau, it's not going to help your credit score. So we can contrast that again with credit cards. 
where if you responsibly use a credit card, you get credit for the payments that you're making on time in the form of your increased credit score. Right. So it's just something to be mindful of. And if you're in doubt, go with the credit card. I think we can safely say that. And know also, when you're looking into these buy now, pay later plans, that in some instances, you have to link it to a debit card or even a bank account to make your payments. Always, always be cognizant of whether you are authorizing auto debit to make your payments, whether it be this payment method or credit cards, any payments that you have to make on a recurring basis, you should know whether you're authorizing automatic debit. Those are all just things to safeguard your money during That's this right. time. I want to mention another subject that is going to influence consumer decisions over the holidays. That's consumer reviews. Now, there has been a raft of recent academic study into how consumer reviews affect our purchasing habits. And there's been a raft of recent research and law enforcement activity about fake consumer reviews. So we have to be cognizant as consumers about the prevalence of fake reviews. Up to 30 to 40% of all digital reviews are fake reviews. So there's a potential there to influence consumer decisions based on information that's simply untrue. And there are federal laws that address this, and there's state law that addresses this. And using a fake review is problematic for the marketplace. It just hurts transparency in the marketplace. One of the recent rulemakings at the federal level has been undertaken by the Federal Trade Commission to address and combat the presence of fake reviews affecting e-commerce. And the Federal Trade Commission has listed a slew of prohibited conduct for businesses. They can't purchase fake reviews. They can't sell fake reviews. And if they do so, they can be liable for violating the FTC Act. That was DCCA's Mana Moriarty helping us to be more aware of how consumers can protect themselves from scams or practices that impact their buying online. He says another area that's emerging is efforts by unscrupulous businesses to suppress negative reviews. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Recent headlines uh, put the spotlight on how suicide rates and depression in elderly men are soaring. Here with us today is our contributing editor, Neil Milner, with our bi-weekly segment, The Long View. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, USA Today had headlines yesterday uh, about uh, suicide rates. Well, suicide rates, uh, this is about elderly men. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to talk about that very much, and not because I'm an elderly man, (laughs) but because I wanted to talk about the... What we know now more about uh, both success in life and um, mental difficulties with young with uh, boys and young men and 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 girls, and they have a different arc. We've found out more recently about men. The story is a little bit more complicated, but I want you to listen to uh, this little segment from a TED Talk. It's about a minute and a half segment from Richard Reeves, who has done an enormous amount of interesting research about um, the trouble that boys have. In 1972, 
the US passed a landmark piece of legislation. The new law was called Title IX, and it expanded economic and educational opportunities for women, especially in higher education. Back then, there was a 16 percentage point gap in the awarding of college degrees in favor of men. Within a decade, women had caught up and then just blew right past the men. Today, there's an 18 percentage point gap in the awarding of college degrees. So there's a bigger gender gap today in US higher education than there was 50 years ago when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. I study inequality for a living, and for most of my career, I focused on the divides of class and race. But in, in recent years, I've just been noticing more and more gender gaps and not in the direction that I was expecting. Probably like most of you, I'm used to thinking about gender equality and the goal of gender equality as synonymous with the advancement of women and girls. But it's now clear that there are many boys and men who have fallen behind and that we have to be able to think about gender inequality in both directions. One thing that makes that hard is that the changes have been so quick, so rapid, that it's hard to update our beliefs to match the new facts. Yeah, so it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, and, and we now have some information that helps to match the new facts, or that tells essentially the story of boys and the story of girls. They're very different stories, um, and I want to re review them a little bit and to see, to see how the patterns are different. Social media plays a role in both of them. Most of the discussion of social media's bad effects has been about um, adolescent, adolescent girls for good reason because they, there are some significant increases in mental and emotional problems. It turns out that boys have a different pattern. They have a different pattern of failure. They have a different pattern of success in life. Social media comes into the picture, but in different ways for boys and for girls. So let me just pick up on the Richard Reeves story a little bit. Reeves has started an institute for the study of men and boys. He's left the Brookings Institution because he's so convinced that we need more research on that. He's also very explicit in saying just because we find out something about what boys need doesn't mean we pull our attention away in any way from what, what women have. Okay, so in a, in a nutshell, here's the situation for women. He's explained it to you in lots of ways. In terms of success in life, measurable success like education and so on, especially education, phenomenal change in women. That 17% gap in some ways underestimates it. My veterinarian's graduating class and um, veterinary school is, is very hard to get into. 80% of them are women. It used to be basically an all-male profession. 80% are not women. That's the good side, this kind of success, what Title IX um, encouraged and really had a strong effect. The other side is what we've talked about before a little bit on this, and I've written about this, is that women, young girls, adolescents have been tremendously affected by social media in ways that boys haven't. That is, they seem there there had been, at least this is how it was reported then, a big increase starting in about 2013 or so with the introduction of, of uh, social media, smartphones, a big increase in 
all kinds of emotional problems, thoughts of suicide, depression, increased things like cutting yourself, all the bad signs. Boys were getting ignored in there because their, their rate was lower. So the story there is that the success story of women is there, but we now have this other part worrying about particularly young girls and, what it's, and, and their mental health problems. Here's the story for boys. Boys were, you know, we were successful when we were boys. It was at least compared to women because there was all kinds of obstacles to women doing it. Over time, the difference, the, the problem with boys is different than the problem with girls who reacted to social media in a very different way. They, uh, they particularly uh, body image, uh, those kind of comparisons. What happened to boys over time, what happened to men over time, is that men have gradually withdrawn from life. That's the argument. Men are less likely to be involved in the civic activities that used to bring them um, and, and other kinds of activities that made them more part of a group. They, had a, they, they, they lost jobs. Um, they quit going to church. They became a less integral part of the family in the old-fashioned way that they the did. The more withdrawn. The more withdrawn. They weren't the primary breadwinner. There was one study that suggested that Leave it to Beaver was the model that these, that these guys used to follow. Men withdraw, Okay. So along comes social media, and the men, it turns out now, and this is on the basis of Jonathan Haidt's research on boys and social media and depression. Haidt is now also um, uh, an affiliate with the Richard Reeves Institute. So what, that, what it shows now is that the, what's happened to boys as they began to withdraw they began to become attached to social media in a different way. They, social media reinforced the withdrawal. They became much more involved in games and virtual reality. And so they became, their, their mental and emotional health issues were much more related to this kind of withdrawal than the women's sort of sense of insecurity. But the, the final point to make is that what Reeves finds and what Jonathan Haidt finds also is that if you look more closely at the data, which we didn't really do very long, uh, boys' suicide rates uh, are very high, and they were going higher. And the greatest risk, uh, the greatest risk, one risk factor for um, suicide is being male. So the important thing is that we have a, a problem that's more complex than we thought. We have a challenge that's more complex than we thought because it's different for boys than girls. Even though social media seemed to exacerbate the problems in both cases, it did so in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting, you know, to see that the, the risk uh, for mental health problems in males and what more can we be doing to change that. Sure. If, you know, we've got the headlines with with more elderly men. So yeah, it, it's sure. something that we've got to ask. What more can we? Well, and I mean, the obvious thing is always medical intervention or, or therapeutic intervention, which makes more sense. The more complicated one is what do you do with social media? Mm. Um, and part of it is because. This is not all about social media. Uh, some people say, well, don't forget how much social media can help you engage. So this is yet another thing, along with AI, that we have to figure out how to cope with. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. 
We have been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner. He joins us every other week for The Long View. We'll have links to the articles and video he mentioned on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Our reality check today is an energy story about microgrids grids in Lahaina. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri joins us with the latest. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you know, uh, I started to hone in on microgrids uh, after the lava inundation there on the Big Island, you know, when all those uh, power poles burned up in the lava. Right. Uh, same kind of an idea and kind of at the, the you know, core issue of, of this story that we're looking at is, you know, ways to make uh, the, the grid and the infrastructure more resilient in Lahaina, uh, more than what existed there prior to the fire. And one of the topics that keeps coming up is this uh, notion of microgrids, which are basically uh, ways in which, you know, clusters of, of homes and buildings that are near one another can basically access stored power through some sort of grid architecture. They can basically island themselves off so that when there is an outage, uh, you know, on the big island, if they're, you know, when there is lava that's, that's breaking everything down and you're in a state of emergency, uh, you can access that stored power and continue to uh, keep things running. Uh, there's more resiliency in these kind of systems, um, but they are very hard to set up, is what I understand in, in the reporting for this. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacles, uh, but if you can get past some of those obstacles, they, there are uh, some, some definite pros to having this, these kind of grids within a grid baked into your your system so that's basically what the, the story explores in terms of you know as we as we start these conversations the community starts having these conversations about yeah. building back in Lahaina and so I, I think of it kind of like little pods right <laughs> you string them all together uh, but uh, I, I know one aspect that you've examined is this whole idea of uh, the shutoff right so you know as, as some listeners might recall there continues to be criticism, frankly, of Hawaiian Electric uh, from the, the immediate aftermath of the fire. You know, the question immediately came up, well, why was the power not shut off on a region-wide level, uh, similar to what you've seen in similar wildfires in California? Uh, turns out there is no such plan, uh, but the, the company has since talked about, you know, they're, they're in early talks trying to develop such a plan. And in my conversations with Colton Ching, who is Hawaiian Electric's VP for Planning and Technology, he, he mentioned, you know, as, as that whole saga kind of moves forward, uh, microgrids could be a way to solve some of the issues with a region-wide shutoff where you're still allowing, you know, uh, emergency uh, responders and, and people that are living with disabilities and, and you know, ailments and really are, you know, very extremely reliant on keeping the power flowing. Microgrids and, and some kind of microgrid design, you know, that would really help solve this issue of, of 
Hawaii finally getting public safety power shutoff programs similar to what you see on the mainland. Yeah, so they're really kind of more uh, self-sufficient in these little uh, grid areas. Right. I mean, the idea being that, you know, the, the power knocks off. You have some sort of battery storage if it's a, if it's a clean um, – uh, or you know, if it if it's a renewable energy project, solar project, you've got battery. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be renewable, though. You can also talk about you know a, a diesel uh, generated microgrid where, where things uh, you know where, where that can can generate your your stored power, so to speak. Now the challenge with with especially like renewable sol- solar projects, which are more than just you know slapping panels on your roof. Is that you know you need land, you need a lot of space. You know, uh, uh, Colton was talking about how you know the the amount of acreage needed uh, to you know basically to re- if you were to replace the the whole Lahaina grid, the area that was destroyed with microgrids. I mean, the the amount of, of land and acreage required goes up exponentially, and then you also have to have you know permits and financing all come together uh, around the same time. And in Lahaina's case, you're talking about um, uh, you know, for uh, for Lahaina, you're talking about a timeline, right, mm. to, to build everything up. Uh, so you've just got this time element that doesn't exist uh, necessarily with, with other projects. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges. This is very new. Um, there's only, a, you know, a couple of things, frankly, in the works uh, as far as developing microgrids from the, the private sector. The solar energy says they're, they're very interested in it, uh, but it is kind of in budding form, uh, but it's something we wanted to raise, uh, you know, as, as we're talking about this community conversation about yeah. building back behind a better and stronger. Exactly. Reset. Reset. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate it. That was reporter Marcel Henre. Check out his energy story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Would you look at the beak on that one? And that's right, we're talking about Java sparrows who can be recognized by their less than dainty beaks. But we've also got their lovely calls for you, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's biologist Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo with your Manu Minute. Java sparrows are very common birds in cities and towns across Hawaii and really can't be mistaken for any of the other small gray birds that might make their homes here. About the size of a chunky house sparrow, they have huge reddish-pink bills that seem a bit too big for their face, jet-black heads with bright white cheeks, bluish-gray bodies, and, if you look real close, a striking ring of rose-colored skin around their eyes. It's easy to see these birds up close because they love to live around humans. They're often the most abundant birds at bird feeders and on lawns in neighborhoods and parks. They use their huge bills to crack open a variety of seeds and grains, which is why they're so attracted to bird feeders and also why they're considered major agricultural pests, particularly in rice-growing areas around the world where large hungry flocks can descend on rice fields around harvest time. Because they're so common where people live, the songs and calls of the Java Sparrow can be an important part of our soundscape. Java Sparrows are native only to the islands of Java and Bali in Indonesia, and are not really a sparrow, but a type of a strilled finch. 
They have been one of the world's most popular cage birds over the last couple centuries and have been introduced and become established in many parts of the world. Interestingly, their populations in their native habitat have declined so much due to hunting and trapping that they're now considered endangered species in those areas. They were first introduced to Oahu in the 1960s, found they really liked it here, and have since spread and become common on all the other main Hawaiian islands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. And that's it for us. We're all pow for today.